Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Key, Inside Higher Ed's podcast for post-secondary news and analysis. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed, and I hope you're beginning to see signs of spring in your backyards and, more importantly, a light at the end of the dark winter many of us have endured. We've earned it. About today's episode, over the last five to seven years, awareness and adoption of the free openly licensed digital course materials known collectively as Open Educational Resources have grown slowly but steadily, driven by escalating concerns about college affordability and the awareness that textbook expense disproportionately affects the disadvantaged students who already struggle most to enroll and succeed in higher education. Most things do, after all. By accelerating the shift to digital learning into hyperdrive, the COVID-19 pandemic seemed like it might have propelled the use of OER, as open educational resources are commonly known. But new data from an annual report by Bayview Analytics shows that while faculty awareness of open resources continued to grow last year, adoption stalled. In this episode of The Key, we explore the reasons why professors, as their worlds and those of their students turned upside down, might not have felt they had the bandwidth to experiment with a new textbook or format, and the implications for OER and the textbook market going forward. We'll speak with the author of the OER report. Jeff Seaman of Bayview Analytics, and with Dr. Robbie Melton, a professor of education at Tennessee State University and a longtime academic administrator at the Tennessee Board of Regents, who has promoted the use of open resources at historically black colleges and universities in particular. For the student perspective, we'll also talk to Yorgo Gushi, a student leader at Quincy Gammon Community College in Massachusetts. Before we begin, a reminder to subscribe to The Key on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcast platform. Now, let's dive into our first conversation with Jeff Seaman, co-director of Bayview Analytics and author of Digital Texts in the Time of COVID, and Dr. Robbie K. Melton, professor of educational leadership and associate vice president for the National Smart Technology Innovation Center at Tennessee State University. Jeff and Robbie, welcome to The Key. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jeff, you've been tracking the OER landscape for a long time. What do the latest data tell us about how the pandemic altered what had been a pattern of steady, if slow, increase in both awareness and adoption of these free and openly licensed materials? Interesting, because we went into this year expecting everything to be different. Everything else has been different. All of our other studies we've been showing faculty are just overwhelmed in trying to put together a fall term online with probably the majority of them doing it online for the first time in their career. We expected data to be all over the map, and actually we were worried that we wouldn't be able to have enough time to actually have them answer their questions. So in one sense, we were very surprised at how much did not change. Awareness went up. Almost the same amount has gone up, you know, marching up a little bit, a few percentage points every year. Been doing that for five years. We thought that was a bit surprising because we'd expected people to sort of like be so overwhelmed with everything else they were dealing with, they wouldn't have been paying any attention. OER adoption went up a little bit for supplemental materials, but did not go up at all for primary required course materials. This is the first time since we've been measuring, so over a six-year period, that an increase in awareness was not coupled with an increase in adoption. Was that surprising or not is a really interesting question. I mean, I wasn't surprised, but just because of the level of 
activity that faculty members had to be dealing with in general across the board just to get their courses out. The one piece of information we saw in this particular study that really showed that sort of level of how much they were had to deal with is it was the lowest proportion ever that we've seen to change their course materials. That overwhelmingly they were teaching the same course using the same materials that they had done before and the ability to take the time and just to pick something else other than perhaps the two things we did see were adopting a newer edition of the same textbook or moving a textbook from print to digital. But it was the same textbook. And that was about all they had the time and attention to do. So does it seem logical then that faculty members who did remarkable work in keeping most of their students on their educational paths while themselves adapting in ways that some people weren't sure they were going to be able to just had too much on their plates to do even more curricular experimenting by trying OER? Do we also think maybe that they wanted to avoid throwing another curveball to their students? Yeah, I think that it's a strong possibility. Let's put it that way. What we did see is faculty members told us in this report and in multiple others we've done over the past fall that they were using new and different teaching techniques because they had to. And they learned about new techniques and they were doing a lot of more things online. They were doing one-to-one video conferences with students they'd never done before. They were using online resources in ways they'd never done before. And they were also using digital materials to a much greater extent than ever in their previous careers. So was their plate really full? I mean, what they tell us is absolutely we're doing all this other stuff. I got through the term. I'm proud that I got through the term. It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, but maybe not as good as I hoped. All of this comes in and says, did I have the time or attention? And where was selection of a new course material on that hierarchy of needs as I worked my way through the fall? And the answer is pretty below the cut line for most of them. I think everybody was doing those calculations and figuring out what do I have capacity to do? Robbie, how does this collection of findings about what happened in this past year related to OER, how did those findings resonate with you from your perspective as a professor and a longtime system administrator? I'm not surprised at the data. You have to remember when the pandemic hit, you had a 100% transition to online. And as the data is indicating, you had these professors who might not have been really comfortable online, now forced, the word is forced, to be online. So what do you do? You hang on to something that's secure, that you know, and that's a textbook. And going online, now you have to get used to the technology you now have to look at different teaching strategies. So of course, you're gonna hold on to something that you think is near and dear, and that's that textbook. And I would have thought, wow, this would have been a great opportunity for open education resources. But again, we're dealing with a pandemic and you're just trying to survive. So the training that's required for OER, the mentorship, even the resources, you didn't have time because you were doing what? You were trying to get your faculty comfortable 
for teaching online. So based on what you see on the ground, which of the various factors commonly cited by faculty members for not wanting to create or use OER, whether it's concerns about quality or lack of awareness and ability to find open resources, time demands, which do you consider to be the biggest impediments to wider adoption of OER? Okay, I'm going to throw out the top two. Okay. Evaluation and assessment. When you look at commercial textbooks or whatever, you have test banks, you have outcomes, everything is like a recipe. Everything's put in order from beginning to end. With open education resources, you might adopt materials, but then you have to assess it. You have to show short-term, long-term. And it's that long-term outcomes that faculty members are a little uneasy with. Number two, mentors. In other words, if I'm going to adopt open education resources, I would love a community where I can go to the math community and say to the math national organization, can you all help with open education resources? So our learn societies, our professionals, discipline societies have not really stepped forward to help faculty and to really embrace open education resources. Jeff, how does that resonate with you? We've talked in the past about the sort of lack of structures and systems around OER, especially compared to the publisher communities that are long established. How much of a factor are the things Robbie's raising from your perspective? Going back to your original, which of the various pieces are most important? I still have to come back to its awareness as the biggest one. We're just when over the majority of faculty members can even say they have any level of awareness of OER. And that includes the, oh, I'm somewhat aware I've heard of the term, but I really have never seen them. And the other piece that we've seen in that is if you have a consistent effort, an institutional level effort or departmental level effort that gets the OER in front of faculty members in a coherent, comprehensive way that they understand, not just poster on the wall, but something that talks about OER, its advantages, and why you might want it. We've seen in our, both this year and in last year's study, that if faculty members are aware of that, they are three to four times as likely to adopt OER. So when I look at that, there's a huge, given that we know that Probably a slight majority of faculty members have to be classified in the, I have no idea why this is important, why I should use it category, that getting this message in front of them from people they trust and with the, that says why this is better for you or could be better for you is really the key determinant here. I'd say two things that one that we had as a real barrier that we heard two years ago, three years ago was I don't want to move to OER because it's digital. It's a lot more digital. What we saw this year is they all moved to digital, and the opinion about digital moved so much more positive among faculty members than it was just this past spring, that across every group that we looked at, 
They are much more positive about digital materials than they were before. They understand them much more. They understand the breadth of them. They understand what, as Robbie was talking about, the advantages of why every student can have that access on day one and how that works. So that one of those big, you know, I'm not going to go this way because it's digital is pretty much disappeared from the faculty member concerns. Robbie, come back in. And as Jeff indicated, being informed on behalf of the HBCUs with the funding from the Hewlett Foundation, we had a strategic and an aggressive agenda to get OER out to the HBCUs. So for the last couple of years, we've been pounding, I mean, presenting online, on ground at any type of HBCU event, open education resources, open education resources. We even have a portal specially designed just for the historically black colleges and university, even bringing in a cultural collection because that was something that was missing. If you look at the data coming in, you see more of your minority institutions more into that pathway of using open education resources, but that has been deliberate. We're talking with Jeff Seaman, co-director of Bayview Analytics and author of a new report on open educational resources and Dr. Robbie Melton, professor of educational leadership at Tennessee State University and a longtime academic administrator at the Tennessee Board of Regents. Whose responsibility is awareness and ultimately adoption? We know who's advocating for publisher material. It's the publishers, and they've got a lot of resources. Where does the responsibility most lie, and where are the gaps right now? In Who's got the potential to really move the needle? Oh, you know I'm going to jump right into this. <laughs> the chief academic officers at all institutions, they oversee academics. They have the influence just by the strike of a word to make things happen. I also say the president, they have a responsibility because we're talking about access, affordability, and with our community. So on behalf of the HBCUs, we're even going beyond the institution. We're going to the NAACP. We're sending the word out that there are affordable solutions to assist minorities in not just going to college, but staying in college. But again, I put it on the chief academic officers. When you ask faculty members where they find out about their textbook, it's almost always from their peers. So there's been a whole ecological system out there that supported the previous publishing mechanisms, which we saw from two years ago and three years ago in our reports and surveys that faculty were getting very tired of. The question is, who provides an alternative source of that? To your question here, and one is, what we see is if it comes from an organization that you are a member of, like your own institution, or that you trust your professional organization, that it carries considerably more weight 
than if it's just coming from some organization. An OER provider advertising to you doesn't carry the weight as much as your department chairman saying you should look at this or an institution-wide thing that says we have to be concerned with not necessarily pushing OER, but pushing access and affordability. And if I'm pushing access and affordability, what are the best solutions? So clearly the trends that we're seeing, several of which are really intensifying, internal and external pressure on colleges to become more affordable, particularly for disadvantaged students. What had been a slow, steady move to digital learning and course materials, which Jeff, you just pointed out, we just blew past the slow, steady and became forced for everybody. And then the push for greater post-secondary equity generally and digital equity sort of flowing from last summer's Black Lives Matter and George Floyd protests, et cetera. So all of those trends ought to be pushing in the direction of more use of low cost and high quality and accessible materials. Now, the publishers are pushing their own approach to that. And there are obviously institutions and administrators that are supporting inclusive access and other programs that are sort of publisher-created perceived to meet some of those needs. How does OER compete and gain a foothold in that competition? It's called marketing. Marketing, marketing. Of course, your publishers market, whether it's a desktop or whether it's a pop-up email or whatever, social media. OER has missed that opportunity to push and market And again, as Jeff indicated, it's not that we're pushing, we're looking at access, affordability. But again, in order for people to know, they have to hear it more than from one format. So I say, if you want to see a major jump in faculty being aware, we have to be very strategic in our marketing, not only to the faculty, but for the students. There's lots of advocacy for OER coming from lots of different sources, but it is pretty diffused. Is there a need for something more centralized? And what does that look like? Is there a need? Absolutely. And I agree completely with Robbie. You know, the whole point here is how do you market this piece and get a marketing often has a especially in academia, how it comes with bad connotations that, you know, um, that's not something we do in academia. But it is really the case that, you know, in my view, the biggest barrier to faculty understanding the potential merits of open resources is they've not been aware of them and been informed in a meaningful way of what those pieces are. And I agree with sort of your diverse and diffused sets of activities going out there. But The good news on that is from the OER front is there's far more of that now than there was five years ago. It's much more visible now. And there's an understanding, at least in several of these, and for example, Robbie's example in the HBCUs, where if you take a focused attempt 
to move and get a message out to a large group of people in some way that you've thought about with a very, okay, we're going to talk about how this is affordable. We're going to talk about how this impacts accessibility and we're going to do in a meaningful way that allow, and then provide the structure in place. Maybe it's research librarians, teaching and learning centers or whatever else is happening on the institutional side that supports that and reinforces that message. It's been very effective. Rob was mentioned in the HBCUs in the report this year that we see that in minority serving institutions across the board that we looked at, awareness of OER is up over others, that they have just as much saying that if I were aware of an initiative, I'm three to four times likely to adopt OER, and their OER use is higher than other institutions in general. So that, that kind of focus, we have a lot of evidence that if you put the energy into these big picture marketing pieces where you're marketing the right message to faculty members that answer a particular concern of theirs, that it's been effective. Do the various pressures and influences on the higher ed market right now, the push to make college more affordable, particularly for underrepresented and disadvantaged students, pressure to focus more on equity, the sudden forced shift to digital and whatever staying power that has, create conditions that collectively could lead to a significant expansion of OER use? As a researcher, I'm most excited because I don't know. What I like about this Times of chaos are also times of opportunity. And there's been a lot of chaos in higher education and massive amounts of change. So what we're seeing is, you know, that steady growth, a couple of percentage points, 5%, whatever per year and in, in OER awareness and OER use and how people were and a steady move to digital, which, you know, as you said, just we blew that one out, means that the situation next spring, this is your situation next fall, is going to be unlike any we've seen before. And what we've heard from both faculty members and administrators, including the chief academic officers, is the post-pandemic won't be the same as pre-pandemic. We will have many changes that we will carry forward from our experience here. And the questions then are, how is that going to impact all of this? So on the one hand, much more use of digital, we actually have in this evidence this time, it's the first time that the sort of the quality ratings for OER materials are actually higher than for commercial publisher materials. So there is a lot of evidence in there that those who want to make this message of affordability, accessibility, and potential use of OER have a lot more in their arsenal to use in that kind of piece. And they have a whole lot of faculty members who have sort of put all of their changes on hiatus while they had to get through this. So there's a new opportunity coming up where everybody is going to have to say, I'm all right, I learned doing this. I'm going back to teaching face-to-face. What am I going to carry forward from what I learned, what I did previously versus what I did in this past fall and this spring and what's going to be different? I think there's a huge opportunity here for a lot of change. The big question is, it's an opportunity for all. It's an opportunity for commercial publishers. It's an opportunity for just if faculty members substantially change the way they teach, the whole sort of metric by which they evaluate these materials may be different two years from now than it is right now. Great. Love being a researcher when you don't know what the answer is going to be. And again, we have to apply what we call tenure promotion scholarship for faculty to embrace and to implement 
Again, those are the key in academia. And I say to you all, using open education resources takes time, energy, and effort. I haven't used a textbook in over 15 years. That means I have to constantly research the reward system. Okay, so if this is counted as scholarship, peer review, tenure, and promotion, oh, you're going to see a definite increase, a significant increase in adoption. listening to The Key with Inside Higher Ed. Be sure to subscribe to this free podcast on your favorite platform, including iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Podcast. That was Jeff Seaman of Bayview Analytics and Robbie Melton of Tennessee State University. We now welcome into the program Yorgo Gushi, who studies electrical engineering and computer science at Quincy Gammon Community College and Worcester Polytechnic Institute and is chair of the Student Advisory Council for the Massachusetts Department of Higher Education. What is it about OER that has attracted your interest, and why is it important to you? Our community colleges serve the biggest chunk, the biggest percentage of underrepresented populations. There would be Black and Brown students, Latinx communities, AAPI communities. So we are really interested to realize that students of these communities, they struggle in their education. And putting a high price on their materials is something that hinders them. And we want our students to succeed. Many of them suffer food and housing insecurity. So adding an extremely expensive bill to all what they're going through right now, it's a really big deal. It's very difficult for us to do When you're out talking to your student peers, do they get it? Does OER resonate with them? Some people are very passionate about it. They know what it is. They know what OER does, but some of them have literally no idea. And addressing those students who know about it, they are very passionate because when they hear the word no payment or no price or free textbook, that's the magic (laughs) word right there. But these people who do not know about it, when you tell them it's an open license material that you can work on it, recreate, that other professors have created for you, they get very interested on it. But I believe they do not follow up with it because they're used to those classic materials that professors provide. Mm -hmm. So like they're used to listening to McGraw Hill, they're used to Pearson, And when they hear names other than that range, they're a bit suspicious, I would say. Interesting. And then I assume in your work, you have exposure to professors as well. What are the primary impediments you sense among professors from adopting open resources? Is it awareness or are there also other impediments that even when they know about it may keep them from wanting to use them? So I think awareness is a bigger problem for students, but on the faculty side of this, I believe they are aware. Most of the faculty I know and the people I've encountered, they know what OER is, 
But I would say because of COVID, this session, they're hesitant because they didn't have the time or they didn't want to commit to recreating something new during such an uncertain time. But even before COVID, I think they were hesitant because they were not sure they wanted to commit their time, efforts, and everything into some materials that in the end, other professors might not adopt. So I think they were worried about how approved their materials will be and how well accepted they will be. But there are some professors who they try to break the barriers. They're really passionate about it. And that's what we love, seeing professors that fight for this and try to help students because at the end, OER is meant to help students. Do you see progress in support for and ultimately, do you think you will see progress in adoption of open resources as the pressures on colleges to become more affordable continue to grow as pressures to create a more equitable education system grow? I do. I think since my very first year that I started in 2019, up to now, I've seen really big progress, honestly. And I believe that COVID set the ground for more improval. I think COVID created such fertile ground for OER to grow because we realized that even with what happened, all the resources are available to us through technology. And we want materials that are open. We want materials that are accessible. We want them to be affordable. We want the students to benefit from the information we provide for them. So I think in the years to come, as more student interest grows, I think the pressure will glow on faculty members and also the pressure will glow on administrators. Because as we're moving towards recovering from a pandemic, we want to recover economically as well. So colleges are looking to attract students and what a better way to attract them by offering materials like this. I don't know whether you have any experience with inclusive access or some of the other approaches that some of the publishers have put forward. Also, as they view it to address affordability. What's your sense of those approaches and do you support them as better than the old publisher model, but still less desirable than OER? How do you look at that? So I haven't been exposed to resources like that, but based on my understanding, I believe that everything is a business, correct? (laughs) So these companies looking that students, professors, and administrators are turning their head towards OER. They're trying to build more affordable choices for these students. But of course, as you said, they are good, but not as good as OER. I think they're like the midway you would take, but of course, we want the best route. Right. When you are trying to persuade a student that OER is a good thing with the hope that they may, as you said, sort of apply pressure to faculty members and administrators. What catches students' interest? What's the sales pitch? So usually the people in higher education tend to convince people with data, with surveys, with information like that. But I don't think students are impressed with a lot of information. 
So I think that personal touch, reaching out to them as a fellow student or even better as a faculty member in their college and telling them, look, the OER is evolving and it's very good for you. It's a choice that could benefit you, be more successful. So if you share with them this personal story and let them know in a simple language that OER does such and such, it's an open license, you can recreate the material after you purchase it. If there is a purchase price, it will be very low. And then after it, you get to keep the material because with other publishers, usually when you buy access codes and things like that, you do not get to keep all of them. So students knowing that they can highlight, they can make notes in their books, they can keep them and reference them in their future years of their education, I think that's what grabs their attention. And if you tell them that, oh, look at this college, they work with OER and they save, let's say, $1.2 million in a year. They get impressed by it because it is impressive after all. But then is ultimately the thing that captures their attention, the fact that it's going to knock their bill down and be more affordable? Is that really what is the ultimate decider for students? I think, yes, affordability is, you know, we say don't judge a book by its cover, but judge it by its price. (laughs) So I think students tend to be impressed by lowering the price of it component, but also by the equity component, as I mentioned. So by OER, we're trying to boost success into these communities. And if they know about it, they tend to be more acceptable towards it. That was Yorgo Gushi of Quince Gammon Community College. Thanks to him and to Robbie Melton and Jeff Seaman for their thoughtful insights on this week's program. And please join us in the coming weeks as The Key takes a look at issues such as the state of adult students in higher education, what keeps college presidents up at night, and a new effort to help colleges learn how to work together. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Letterman, and this is The Key.